Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happen in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Hello! Hello, how are you doing there? I am toasty. Yes, indeed. I'm wearing an enormous fleece. Yes, it is fantastic. You look like a, uh, a gumdrop. I do. I am preparing for winter. Yeah. It's also a luminous green. It is quite like a gumdrop. It is luminous, yeah. yes. Fantastic. I'm not going to get lost at sea. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, speaking of sea, we are not going back to our nautical theme this what? time. No, I But know. I swear, it's been like five weeks now. <laughs> we no. barely touched land. <laughs> no, we are very much land-based this week. Oh. Although water does come into it later, but... <laughs> Almost immediately renege on your water-based, <laughs> no. No, on your land-based theme. No, it is still mostly land-based. Is it like a glass of water comes into it? No, you, we'll get there. Okay, okay, okay. So the individual I want to talk about this week is very famous. Ooh. Uh, it's likely that people will have heard of him or have some idea, if not actually knowing who he is, then probably knowing about some of the stuff that he's is named after him. Okay. He is a very famous individual, but I'm not going to introduce him by his more common name. Okay. Until a little while later. I'm going to talk about his original birth name. Ooh. Now, we don't know his exact birth year. (laughs) Okay, great. But we are in Germany. Right. And we are talking about the 15th century. Okay. His birth year could be any year between 1394 and 1404. Okay. But in the 1890s, the city of Mainz declared this man's birthday to officially be June 24th, 1400. So we're going to go with that. Sure. Fine. Like how Shakespeare's birthday is apparently the same as the day he died. Yeah. But who knows? Yeah. So... This week, I'm going to talk about Johannes Ginsfleisch. Okay. Which, that, the translation, please? Uh, roughly, it well, not roughly, it means goose flesh. Cool. <laughs> I think like goosebumps, you know? I guess, but I suppose I was just thinking it's like having the last name Pork, isn't it? It is rather, yes. Yeah. Which may be a reason that he changes his name later on. Fair enough. Well, he was born to a wealthy patrician merchant uh, by the name of Frieler Gensfleisch zur Laden. Okay. And that is a naming convention pretty typical of the time where you would kind of say where you were from. But in Germany, it's not just like what area. This is specifically what house you are from. Okay, (laughs) sure. Like your family home. I mean, I guess that makes sense if you've got a biggish house. Yeah, yeah. And it will come into play again later on. Okay. So, Friele Gensfleisch zur Laden. I'll Mm -hmm. just say Friele. Good plan. Uh, He was actually was married to his second wife at this point, Elsa Virik. Okay who was the daughter of a wealthy shopkeeper in the city of Mainz in the Rhine-Main area of Germany. Okay, so that's kind of close to France, right? Yeah. 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 So Friler was almost certainly a cloth merchant, but also did work as a goldsmith. What? Yeah. What combination is that? I know. I'm going to say this now. Despite the person that we're talking about being very famous... We know so little about him, or so okay. little that we know for certain. In fact, there are many years in his life where it's just like, 
He disappears. We don't know where he went. And then he crops up again later. But I'm trying to guess who this is. And I'm going Germany 1400s. Yep. And I'm thinking it's either between Nostradamus. Yes, that's exactly it. You are Nostradamus. Is that it? No. Oh. Anyway. So Freela was a cloth merchant, also working as a goldsmith, and as such had ties to the local ecclesiastical mint. Okay. Uh... He was put in charge of providing metals to the mint, making changes to the coinage, and also sitting in on trials of forgery. Oh, fun. So he's a pretty wealthy guy and a pretty important person in the community. And this is why it's a bit odd that we have so little information about Johannes Gensfleisch. Right. Because you kind of feel like he's of a social class that really we probably should. Like, he's not like the, the people... That we sometimes talk about who are the sort of the lower classes who, you know, their early life isn't recorded until they do something extraordinary. Yeah, I get you. But I guess maybe it's still merchant class of the time. Like, even if he's quite well to do. Yeah, the patrician classes were pretty powerful in Germany Oh, that's at a the fair time. point. I hadn't thought about it being patrician classes in Germany. Yeah. In that case, I have no idea. Maybe it's because he's a wizard? this guy no oh no (laughs) no he's just the youngest son of this very wealthy merchant okay we can do a bit of speculating about his early life but to be honest not very much like the first sort of thing we can really speculate about was that the family was forced to leave Mainz in 1411 oh because there was actually an uprising against the wealthy patricians oh no (laughs) over a hundred families were forced to leave oh my god how wealthy was Mainz I have no idea. That sounds but, pretty wealthy to me. Yeah, it was quite a big city, so I I can only imagine that it was pretty wealthy and, you know, had many of these families. I don't know what the cutoff point where it's <laughs> like, okay, you're poor enough that you can stay. Yeah, I guess it's very difficult with an uprising. It becomes a bit like the time when everyone who had glasses was executed in China. What? Oh, so <laughs> this was part. This is what I heard. I might be wrong, right? But this was part of um, the communist revolution. Oh, okay. And it was basically Mao wanted to get rid of the intellectuals. Oh, right. And how do you cut off who's an intellectual? So he decided anyone who had glasses had been reading too hard, and thus we ended up with the weird right. situation. And- which might not be true, but Mao did kill a bunch of birds who were very helpful to the Yeah, Mao did a lot of very odd things. Yeah. And I think that's an understatement. Yeah. Well, anyway, over 100 families were forced to leave, and this likely does include Freela, Elsa, and their children. Yeah. As they don't appear again in Mainz for a long while, but do crop up again in Eltville am Rhein, sometimes known by its Latin name of Alta Vila. as well as in nearby Strasbourg. There is a record in the University of Enfurt of a student by the name of Johannes de Altavilla enrolling in 1418. Okay. So, Johannes from Altavilla. Yeah. We don't know for certain if this is our Johannes, though. Well, yeah, it's quite a common name, isn't it, It is, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm... I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's difficult. It's really difficult. But we do know that Johannes was a very intelligent person and pretty handy at picking up skills. By the time we get to know a bit more about him, he's already learned blacksmithing, gem polishing, goldsmithing, and possibly something akin to chemistry. Okay. Now, I haven't heard many people talk about this, but I think he probably did, given something later on. 
Okay. Johannes' father died in 1419. Oh, wait, I've got it. I've got who it is. Fine. Pretend to be surprised later on. Okay. (laughs) Johannes' father died in 1419, and though Johannes received some inheritance, he didn't seem to really inherit any of the businesses or a great deal of wealth. Okay. Presumably because it all got lost during the various rebellions against the upper classes. I mean, quite possibly. But Mm. I think, you know, being the youngest son, he wasn't going to inherit the estate. Mm, True. So I think that, you know, he's just at this point, he's got to kind of make his own way in the world. And he's like, father, why did you not make me a clergyman? (laughs) (laughs) We then lose track of him. Okay. For about mm, 17 years. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah. Like I say, he's not well documented. He crops up again in 1436, where we have his name appearing in court records mm-hmm. because of a broken promise of marriage to a woman called Enelin of Strasbourg. Okay. There Rude. are a few de- details. We don't know who broke the promise okay, or that's whether fair. <laughs> or not, you know, they got married in the end. We don't know if this man ever married. (laughs) Okay, wow. But what we do know is that in 1439, he became involved in a get-rich-quick scheme. Ooh, okay. Possibly cynically or possibly sincerely. But I think for this story to have its impact, we should probably know who this man is. Okay. Because he no longer went by the family name of Gensfleisch. Presumably. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, you don't really want to be called Goose Flesh all your life. No. <laughs> no, by 1427, he had adopted the tradition at the time of naming oneself after one's family home. Right. I mean, he was still Johannes Gensfleisch zu Laden. Mm-hmm. But now he decided to name himself after his forefather's home, which in English translates as Good Mountain. (laughs) Yes. So, yes, this week we are talking about Johannes Gensfleisch zu Laden zum Gutenberg. Yay! Otherwise known as Johannes Gutenberg. Yay! So, for those listeners who are still confused as to why I'm talking about this man and why, you know, I'm assuming that you know who he is, this man is generally credited as being one of the most significant figures of the last thousand years and i don't yeah. mean that hyperbolically like we'll get on to later on some of the the weird lists he's appeared in but he was the inventor of movable type printing mm-hmm. well not quite it was actually invented beforehand but we'll we'll get to the details later on but essentially his work allowed europeans to mass produce books yes which in itself allowed for things like the Reformation to happen, the Enlightenment, and basically, you know, the beginning of the scientific revolution. And quite a lot of the Renaissance, to be honest. Yes, that's true as well, yeah. But in this time, he's not quite got there yet. Okay. He's got to make some money first. Right, and so he decided to become an Avon lady. Well, I mean... Yeah, not really. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say that and you, and have you pondering over <laughs> the veracity of this. It was supposed to be entirely facetious. Well, he does kind of get involved in selling things to people. Okay. Um, Is it a pyramid scheme? 
No, it's not. Okay. Well, possibly. Is Who it knows? an MLM of no. the Middle Ages? No, no, no. <laughs> well, we know that Johannes had been around religious institutions for much of his life. I've already mm-hmm. talked about his father being rela- uh, like close to the ecclesiastical mint. Yeah. It seems... I, I don't know how religious he was, considering that... Gutenberg is famous for the Gutenberg Bible. Yeah, but also one imagines that Bibles must have sold well, which is the difficulty. Exactly. So it's hard to tell sort of at which angle he's going at this from. It could be a sort of cynical attempt or it could be a genuine religious thing. Because what he's effectively going to do is get involved in selling dodgy holy relics. Okay. I mean, that's a legit business enterprise in medieval times it is absolutely but he's not going to you know go to go as far as like selling the head of john the baptist or anything like that no he's got a better idea to mass produce which seems to be a thing with his life okay he's going to mass produce some holy relics right wait he was making the holy relics yes or at least someone was and he invested in this scheme okay there was a belief at the time that Relic, holy relics produced a sort of holy light around them. That the sort of the very air around them was holy. Okay. And that this could be captured in mirrors. Right. So the plan of this scheme was to buy up many hundreds of polished metal mirrors Uh and place them around holy relics. They would basically charge them up <laughs> yeah. with holy light and they would sell these mirrors on to pilgrims. Basically, you know, take a bit of the relic's holiness home with you. Oh, that's so good. I know, like, right? Like, that's genius. Yeah. That does have an air of, you know, copper bracelets for arthritis it about really it. It really is, isn't I it? I don't know why. Yeah. So the plan was to place all these mirrors around uh, holy relics of the Emperor Charlemagne. Okay, sure. Which were kind of being brought around as an exhibition piece at the time. Right. I didn't even know that Charlemagne was considered saintly. I have no idea. Right. I, I couldn't find out exactly what these relics were. All I could find were places saying, there were relics of the Emperor Charlemagne. And I'm like, really? Cool. I mean, probably. There's just leftover stuff that he had. Yeah. I mean, we still have it. I mean, yeah, but I'm not seeing anyone grabbing polished metal mirrors and holding them around them. Well, yes, but you don't see people grabbing polished metal mirrors and holding them around actual relics anymore. Or the Pope. Or the Pope. (laughs) Actually, that's a point. Do you think the Pope would emit, like, an aura of holiness that you could capture? I genuinely don't know. It's a good question. I mean, so presumably, like... Holy relics, my first thought is like saints' body parts or bones or things like that. Yeah. I don't know why that's the first thing I think of. I think it's a medieval image in your mind. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, it can be all kinds of things. Like, it can be something they've owned or it could be their tears sometimes, Mm. which is rather cute, I think. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, if the bones are going to be, you know, holy relics, does that, is that like, is the person like holy? I mean, they must be, they're saints. I'm but, just I'm, I'm just curious about the idea of capturing the holy light. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, the question is, is the Pope automatically going to be a saint, though? Because I don't think they always are. No, no, that's true. But if you could find a saint mm. and surround them in mirrors mm. and sort of reflect that holy... Oh, my God, this is like holiness generation. Like, this is... Yeah. Uh, 
This is like a perpetual motion machine <laughs> You know what? I've got the perfect idea. Yeah. You know, there was that church in Barcelona yeah. where there was the maiden who had like 13 sacred geese or something. Yes. I don't remember what the number of geese are, but they're significant. I think significant. it is 13 because I think it's meant to be the age at which she was martyred. Yes, I think that's it. And it was quite tragic. Yeah. So what if you put the mirrors around the 13 sacred geese. First of all, it would look like there were loads of geese, which Yay. would be awesome. And they would <laughs> like, also be freaked wow. out. Wow, she lived until she was really old. <laughs> look at that, an infinite number of geese. <laughs> and then, She's still alive today. And then presumably, because these are sacred geese, you'd have so much sanctity yeah. also you could capture the noise of the geese because presumably sound would also have holiness in it maybe I have no idea i have no idea how this i mean work. light definitely has more of a sort of holy uh, like holy chops to it than sound does i guess yeah Fair anyway <laughs> so looks like he's gonna make a lot of money on this scheme i mean maybe i don't know who's gonna buy this uh pilgrims going to arkham uh, do they genuinely do it no, but not because no one wants to buy these weird mirrors, right? But because the heavens open and there's a flood. Oh, and the city is so badly flooded they have to cancel the exhibition. Yeah, and delay it for another year. I think that's a sign from God that this isn't the way to do it. I mean, that was my thought as well. If you take things like Marjorie Kemp's ideas about how God works. Yeah. Remember her with her donkey that wouldn't walk yeah. on the treadmill. Like, that is exactly what's happening here. Yeah, a massive flood really does kind of tell you, God's going, hey, maybe you should have another crack at this. Yeah. So, yeah, the exhibition has to be delayed for a year. And Johannes was unable to recover his capital on the investment and oh, no. lost a great deal of money. Oh, no. And he needed money because he had another project on the go. Okay. We don't know exactly when he started his grand project, which he called Aventure und Kunst, or Enterprise and Art. Ooh. But it seems by 1440, the project was well underway and at least technologically finished right like he'd worked out how to make this movable type printing press but okay hadn't... so it is the movable type printing press it that you're is, talking it about is, okay yes. good i mean it's his grand project i was worried he'd have another one that he'd try halfway through and it would be equally batshit no i think we've got a few major beats in his life that we know about we know about the Mirrors of holy light. Yeah, sure. We know about the printing press and we know about what happens afterwards. Okay, so printing press time. It is indeed printing press time. Well, Woot. not quite yet. Okay. Because but moves towards printing moves press, towards press time. It, yeah. He's, he's got a prototype. He's going got on. yeah, he's got the prototype. He's like basically tested the theory and oh my god, it works. This is fantastic. So for those of our listeners who may be going Okay, so he did some printing. I can see that that's impressive. But why is he so important? Mm. It's because of the type of printing he was doing. You've already heard me refer to it as movable type. And the point is that printing had existed long before Gutenberg made his press. Mm. But it was still really difficult. Like, quite possibly as difficult as handwriting a book. Because what people would have to do is effectively carve out entire pages worth of blocks yeah and then it could be printed but you can only do that a certain number of times as well can't exactly you? so it's not like you can do it once and then you're set you can do it once and you'll get off a number of copies and then it just falls apart mm. 
But what Johannes Gutenberg managed to do was uh, invent a type of printing which involved... I mean, it sounds so simple when you think about it now, but it was kind of revolutionary that you would basically just have blocks of letters and you could piece them together. Yeah. And they were made of similar casts as you would make for coins, which, you know, he knows a lot about coins and casts, which is probably where he got that knowledge from. And it meant that they could be used over and over again. But there was actually another part to his invention, which is less well known and distinguishes him from some of the earlier presses in different parts of the world. Because it is important to say that movable type had actually been invented already in China. Right, but we don't have access to that. Well, it's not just that we don't have access to it, but they had a few problems with it, which is probably the reason that Gutenberg's style, aside from the, you know, Eurocentric history and, you know, the history of white people going into places and being like, hey, this is our stuff now and you can have some of our stuff or you can have some of our culture and that. Yeah. But we can see that uh, this style of printing or possibly not exactly movable type, but block printing has been around since at least the ninth century and likely before Mm. in China by Buddhist monks. Okay. And this early block printing had relied on wooden blocks Mm -hmm. that had to be carefully carved. And the reason for this wasn't because of mass distribution of literature. It was actually to protect literature. Okay. Because Buddhist monks were concerned that people invading them Mm. would destroy all their religious texts. Uh, It has happened to lots of Buddhist monks that all their religious texts have been destroyed, either by people invading them or by people who've taken over their country. Yeah. Like from within yeah happened with the mongols Mm. yeah so what they wanted to do was basically have a backup right so all of these texts would be very carefully carved and then they could be more easily transported around and hidden and you know not just huge sheaves of paper all over the place right okay so it was really it was a practical thing rather than you know mass production Right. So is this more like you're kind the monks are kind of keeping this technology for themselves. They're not trying to distribute it to the masses. Yeah. They're trying to make sure that their things stay safe. Yeah, and it, it's happening in Buddhist temples but not like general populace. It seems to be the case, yeah. Okay. Uh, by the 13th century at the very latest, they had moved on to the quicker method of individual characters being given their own blocks, mm-hmm. which they also had created using similar technology to the casts used for minting coins. Okay. But Gutenberg had one thing that set him apart, and this was that he also developed his own ink. Oh, okay. Because ink, generally speaking, had uh, prior to Gutenberg had been water-based mm. and it had a tendency to fade. Yeah. Whereas Gutenberg developed his own ink that was oil-based. It was clearer on the page, it was easier to use in a printing press and importantly, it would last a lot longer. Okay. Which is why many of the Gutenberg prints that we can see, or possibly see, we'll get to that later on, mm-hmm are still clear and legible today. That makes sense, because, like, obviously there are still some copies of the original Gutenberg Bibles around, I think. And they are still very black and white, and I never really thought about that before. Mm. I mean, it's the thing that really, I think, set him apart from other people. Mm. It meant that, you know, you could have these books go around and around, and they would be still legible. Mm. They wouldn't fade after a few years. (laughs) 
1448, Gutenberg was financing his project partly from a loan from his brother-in-law. Right. He didn't have a great deal of ways to make a lot of money, and this mm. was an expensive project. He had, by 1450, managed to build his printing press, and he printed the first thing on it, which was a German poem. Was it? Yes, it was. But he still required funds to start printing in earnest. Mm. So he borrowed more money, this time from Johann Fust, a goldsmith, who seemed to be cropping up all over the place in this story. Fair enough. I mean, I guess you'd know goldsmiths if your dad's a goldsmith. Yeah. Uh, He was also a financier, so that's handy. So Gutenberg twice borrowed 800 guilders from him. Okay. Uh, I think I saw that this amounted to about £700,000 in today's money. Sure, that's a reasonable investment. Yeah. Early printing works included books of Latin grammar. Nice. As well as printed indulgences from the church. (laughs) So he's still getting in on that, you know, mass marketing church money. Should we explain what an indulgence is? We should, yes. Would you like me to explain what an indulgence is? I'm going to have some tea. All right. So an indulgence is one of my favourite medieval little quirks, I guess. Yeah. The whole idea is... When you die, according to the medieval Catholic Church, you are probably going to go to purgatory straight away. And it's there that you're going to spend years atoning for all the sins in your life. And then eventually, once you've done that, you'll get to go to heaven. Now, obviously, this upset some people on Earth who didn't want to think about their loved ones suffering through all of that in purgatory. So the idea was that there might be ways for you to skip ahead and, you know, shave some years off that time, basically. Um, There were lots of different things you could do for this. So you could, for example, have somebody say lots of masses for you. Mm -hmm. Or you could buy an indulgence. Um, Usually, this had some really interesting ramifications to it. It's kind of like paying for a lottery ticket today i guess so there is for example um a there is a cathedral in france i think it's at rouen Mm -hmm. um where there is a butter tower oh wow okay so the butter tower is a tower made of butter no it's a tower of people made that was paid for by indulgences oh wow for people who wanted to be allowed to eat butter during lent oh amazing (laughs) because one of the things i didn't know about indulgences is not just paying for time off yeah it's basically buying the right to do something that's considered like a minor sin you're buying future sins yeah so like for example in lent you're not supposed to eat any dairy products because they are you know delicious and fattening yeah um and you're supposed to only eat basically vegetables and grains and stuff yeah so people who wanted to eat butter during lent paid for this whole tower to be built at a cathedral like that's what the money went on <laughs> that's amazing it's it's great hey hey you greedy bastards you all paid for this tower yeah exactly <laughs> well he wasn't going to stick with the indulgences because in 1455 gutenberg produced the work for which he is best known at 1,286 pages, at 42 lines a page, about 180 copies of the Gutenberg Bible were produced. Wow. 49 still exist today. Really? A, yeah. 
it's some of them are missing pieces. Yeah, like there's that's not, understandable. Yeah, it's not forty nine whole copies, but there are still a number of whole copies, including uh, one copy in the British Library. Nice. They are considered the most valuable books on the planet. Wow. Yeah, we are talking three quarters of a million pounds. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. more so, than he paid for making the printed press in the first place. Oh then. yeah. Oh yeah. Despite that, at the time, though they were popular, it wasn't like an overnight bestseller. People Mm. hadn't gotten used to the idea of printing overnight in this sort of mass production way. Yeah. And Gutenberg had sunk a lot of money into making this Bible. So in 1456, Fust actually sued Gutenberg. Oh my God. For misuse of funds and for not paying him back. Wow. Fust sued for the... 1,600 guilders, as well as 6% interest, so in total, 2,026 guilders. Right. Fust had claimed that Gutenberg had used money that was meant to be on the printing project for other works. Okay. I don't know what these were. Did he buy more mirrors? (laughs) Possibly. Gutenberg, no! (laughs) I do kind of have a feeling that Gutenberg is one of those people who always has some sort of project on the go. This was not the impression I'd got of him. Like, I guess it's one of those things where I'd never really looked into his life. I just knew about he built the printing press and then it came to England and then etc. So I don't know. I kind of imagined him as a very serious German man with a beard who made a printing press and only cared about printing. Yeah, he kind of strikes me as a little bit Leonard de Quirm in Terry Pratchett's This World. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Just like he's got a lot of ideas on the go. Like, admittedly, they tend to be on a theme. Yeah. But I could see him having lots of these different projects and then being like, okay, this is my money now. I'm going to, you know sort this all out whereas Fust is like hey we're business partners yeah you can't go spending my money on your random other things yeah absolutely yeah and the courts agreed with Fust so they found in favour of him okay Fust received half the printed bibles and full control of the bible printing workshop oh my god yeah he basically ousted Gutenberg on a little side note talking about Fust he was Possibly arrested for witchcraft in France. (laughs) Okay. The story goes that his Bibles were presented to the king. Okay. And the court saw these Bibles and were like, this isn't right. Mm. Firstly, there's some red ink printed here, or possibly blood. (gasps) And also, these are two exact to each other and we Mm. only know about hand copying books so we think there's some sort of devilry at work here okay this story is likely apocryphal it sounds like it's the germans making fun of the french i think it might well be but there is some evidence that in 1465 first did have his Bibles confiscated and was briefly held while he was in france okay because Printing hadn't quite caught on over there, and everyone was a bit confused as how he appeared to be selling the same book over and over again, and they oh, thought it might be a scam. Right. So he was held <laughs> until he basically went, no, this is a new invention. Yeah. Like, this is the future now. And everyone was like, oh, oh, cool, can I have one? Yeah. And I- <laughs> it became really popular. This seems to suddenly, for no reason, just be a theme of our podcast, that France takes a moment to latch onto something and then does so 
very happily. Yeah. Like potatoes. <laughs> Absolutely. Potatoes and the Bible. Yeah. What better combination? There's some people also speculate that this story about him being arrested for witchcraft and also the fact that later on his family name would kind of change from Fust to Faust uh-huh. being the one of the possible inspirations for the story of Dr. Faustus who sells his soul to the devil. Oh, I see. There is little to no evidence of this, though. No, I thought there was another Faust. Yes, there was another Faust. Okay. <laughs> who, like, went to universities and stuff. Yeah, I just thought I'd mention it. No, that's fair. I mean, it's quite funny. So, Gutenberg, unfortunately, doesn't come off so well. He was effectively bankrupt, but he did manage to scrape together enough money to set up his own small printing workshop, and he continued to print books, mostly Bibles. Mm -hmm. The problem is we don't know exactly how many books Gutenberg produced because he didn't put any sort of identifying mark on them. Oh, okay. Fust, on the other hand, did. Yeah. He was very like he definitely wanted people to know that it was his printers that had printed his books and how it had happened so on his first major printing the main salter of 1457 it had a print mark telling people who had printed it and that it had been printed on the new movable type press nice Gutenberg, though, effectively printed anonymously. Okay. So it's possible that we do have more of the sort of Gutenberg printed word out there, Mm. but we just don't know, and we have no way of finding (laughs) out. But despite this, Gutenberg didn't receive probably the recognition he deserved in his lifetime, but he got a little bit. He got a little taste of it. In 1465, he received uh, a title from the Archbishop Adolf von Nassau, who gave him the title of Hoffman, or Gentleman of the Court. And for this, he received a stipend, a set of fancy new clothes. Nice. As well as 2,180 litres of grain. Nice. And 2,000 litres of wine. This is so Chaucer. It's so Chaucer, but I do note there are no eels there. That is true. Not good enough. No. Not good enough. You need some eels with that. But I thought Chaucer just got wine. Chaucer did just get wine, so Gutenberg's up on that. <laughs> I love giving people a stipend of just loads of liquid. <laughs> and grain. And grain. Amazing. Print the grain. <laughs> Print the Bible on these grains. Print the Bible with wine. <laughs> so in 1468, Gutenberg died. Don't know how, he just did. Okay, fine. <laughs> We know so little about him. Uh, Very few people still really recognise the changes he had already helped make to history. He was buried in a pretty nondescript grave in the Franciscan church in Mainz. Mm -hmm. The church and the graveyard were later destroyed, so both Gutenberg's grave and Gutenberg himself are lost forever. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, it's wild how... Almost how unremarkable Gutenberg's mm. life was, or how how much we just don't know about him. Like, for someone who had such an impact on history, we know next to nothing. I've cobbled together a half hour or so episode. <laughs> I've done most of his life. Like, I don't think there's much I've left out. I mean, it is interesting. I guess 
I tend to come at this sort of thing from an English history perspective. Yeah. And sort of thinking of someone who was around at about the same time, mm-hmm. who is Chaucer. Yeah. We do know a lot about Chaucer's life, but that's because he belonged to a lot of different courts. Right. So we know, for example, that when he was a child, he worked for a specific court for like the Countess of Ulster, I think. Okay. And then later on, he moved to a different court and he was a diplomat in Spain. But we know all of these things because he was connected to the aristocracy still yeah now i know that in germany it is different because they have got much more emphasis on the merchant class yeah but i'm wondering how much that was in the 1400s and whether Mm. it might just be that he's slipping under the radar because he's not actually working in a court he's a very separate inventory person yeah it could very well be and it's a bit of a shame because really he kind of made the modern world yeah his legacy is now recognised as being mm. the catalyst for the Reformation. I mean, Martin Luther wouldn't have been able to print out all his things without Gutenberg's press. Theses. Yes. Theses. I love them. <laughs> uh, also, the Enlightenment, Scientific Revolution, as you said, the Renaissance, mm-hmm. and all the stuff that was basically the precursors for the Industrial Revolution and modern life. Do the- you know what the first text in printed in England was? What? It was the Canterbury Tales. Yay! Good old Chaucer. Mm-hmm. In more modern times, there are operas based on Gutenberg's life. There are monuments to him. The US Postal Service adopted a 500th anniversary stamp of him. That's so cute. But most importantly, in 1997, Time Life magazine listed his press as the single most important invention of the last millennium. Wow. And in 1999, the A&E Network listed him as the most important person of the millennium in their countdown to the year 2000. Aww. <laughs> I hope he knows that. I hope he does too. <laughs> With however many indulgences he managed to, you know, squirrel <laughs> away for himself. I don't know if you get to see what happens on Earth from purgatory. Yeah, who knows? Well, thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4 and suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the very best thing you can do right now is to give us a five-star review on your listening app of choice. That'll help spread our word far and wide. So thank you so much. Much like the movable type. <laughs> yes, apps are truly the Gutenberg printing press of today. <laughs> Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any music that Barnaby's used in the podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and remember to pay back your business partners. Bye! Bye.